0: Do you want to hear the most popular Leading Saints episodes of all time? For every podcast episode that has been on our top 10 most popular list, we add a T10 in the title. The T10 stands for, well, top 10. So if you ever want to hear the most popular podcasts, you can go to your favorite podcasting app or to LeadingSaints.org and search Leading Saints T10, and you'll see the full list of our most popular podcast episodes. Oh, and I send out a unique leadership message every week via email that you don't want to miss. Visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe to receive these messages or text the word lead to four seven, four seven, four seven. We'll send you a few bonus items while we're at it. And for all you newbies who are wondering what is leading saints in general? Well, let me tell you. Leading saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. We do this through content creation. To see a wide scope of all of our content, visit LeadingSaints.org. Today, I get the opportunity to sit down in person. We don't do a lot of in-person interviews, it seems, anymore, but today we're doing it, and then I'm with Chris Raleigh. How are you, Chris? Good. Thanks, Kurt. Awesome. And uh, we have a lot to, to go over, and we want to jump into your story and and uh, some principles and but where would you say like early on in your life how would you describe your early developmental years and your faith development in in those times
1: well I think I really was fortunate to grow up in a wonderful home I'll tell a little bit later my mother was married previously to my biological father I really didn't know him at all growing up But my mother remarried my uh, stepfather who was a real dad to us kids My mom had six children at the time, and so it was a real tremendous blessing for him to enter into our life. But I was only three or four years old when that happened. So I grew up in a very happy and healthy church home. I think my parents, when they got married, they were very committed to making sure that the gospel was premier in our lives. And uh, we attended every meeting, and some families look at state conferences a Sunday off, but not us. We were there on the fourth Uh row. And we, and where were you living? Like, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Conwood Heights, uh, Brighton High School. Which is um, uh, Salt Lake County, like yeah. the east side of yeah. Salt Lake County. Mm-hmm. Kind of southeast. Mm-hmm. And so I had five older brothers and sisters. And uh, then my parents uh, married, like I said, and my younger brother, Jeff, was born seven years later. So I have a younger brother, which is really cool. And my older brother and sisters are just fabulous and was really blessed. Both of my parents have passed now, but Mm -hmm. well, truthfully, all three of my parents, if you count my biological father, which I'll talk more about. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so it was very good. You know, we're baptized by my brother, my oldest brother, Ken, and then um, ordained a deacon, teacher, priest, went on a mission at age 19. And And where'd you go? I went to the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia mission. Great.
0: And during those years, I mean... you're just the, the good boy, right? The good Latter-day Saint that was doing all the right things. I mean.
1: I tried. I mean, I was, you know, the deacon's quorum, teacher's quorum, assistant to the bishop. I think I magnified those callings. I tried to be a good boy, but it was my intent to be the best I could be. And I always felt that I had this very personal and, and grateful for relationship with Heavenly Father and His Son. And hmm. So had a successful mission uh, struggle with some things, which I'll talk about, but, uh, overall, very, very blessed upbringing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And let's just uh, sort of, uh, glaze over your, your journey as far as through church leadership and whatnot, just to sort of have a framework to go from. So you come on for your mission and, and did you get uh, married soon after? And then when did uh, church leadership begin for you?
1: When I was, uh, four years after my mission, I married my wife, Pam, and, um, we, uh we worked at some various things for a while kids started coming six children and all and so we moved we i had a really good friend john who was in seminary and institute and i had the opportunity once to go see him teach and i was really impressed with him and his class and the feeling that i felt there so i pursued that as a career and was hired full time in 1994 and uh, my wife and i's first assignment was up in oregon in Hermiston, Oregon, where I taught seminary.
0: You went to from Utah to mm-hmm. your new assignment in Oregon.
1: Yeah, full, full-time full first assignment. My, my opt-year, they called it at the time, where I was student teaching, was up in Camas at South Summit High School. But um, went up there, was within a short period of time, was called to be on the high council, and then...
0: His late 20s, would you say? Um,
1: no, in, in my 30s. Okay. It, it was 30 years old. And then I was called into Bishopric, and then our bishop was called into stake presidency, and then I was called to be the bishop to take his place, and he and his wife right now, are mission presidents over in Africa, hmm. love them a lot. And um, then we moved back to Utah in 2005, and five years later, well, a few years later, I was called into multiple bishoprics again as counselors, which I really enjoyed that opportunity. And then in 2010, I was called to be a stake president, and. Uh,
0: and this is in uh,
1: Utah County area, yeah. you're right? Yeah, we, we moved uh-huh. to Spanish for it. Okay, uh-huh. nice. So uh, so that's, the, the, that's, that's kind of the, the gist of it. Well, and, and currently I'll mention this too, that uh, I work with the Church's Corrections Committee and um, my wife and I have the blessing of visiting six county jails in Gunnison Prison. In fact, just last Sunday we spoke on three occasions as different groups came in uh, on Sunday morning last week in the Gunnison State Prison. So. It really is a wonderful opportunity uh, for me now to uh, minister in this way. It's really yeah. pretty sacred.
0: So let's go back to your uh, childhood. Uh, where does the, that struggle with pornography begin? Was there a moment when you first saw pornography?
1: Well, uh, let me just go back even further because okay. to, to get the context. So if you go back really far, uh, in fact, 11 generations, uh, according to Family Search on the 11th great grandson of Sir Walter Raleigh who Raleigh in North Carolina is named after my last name. And from England, he came on three different occasions in the 1600s. And on one of those occasions, he discovered a product that's agricultural nature and is leafy. And I shared this with a a class of students once. And a student said, I know what it was. I said, what was that? He said, marijuana. And I I laughed and I said, yeah, my grandfather was the first drug dealer. But no, it was a wacky weed. It was tobacco. And so he took it back to England. And now our family's very proud of our heritage because we're <laughs> responsible for millions of tobacco-related deaths in Great Britain. So oh. <laughs> we're very, very proud, especially as members of the church. Yeah. Interesting um, uh, family history. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So addiction really is uh, the crux of what we probably will end up talking about here today. Yeah. And it's it's ironic that, uh, that nicotine certainly is an addictive substance. Uh, but then, it, it, and, and I don't know how far addiction goes back in my family, but it's generations. I know of at least five generations that's affected. And my father was an alcoholic, and that was the cause or reason for he and my mother being divorced when I was only three. Uh, she tried for a decade or more to make that marriage work, but his disease was so... Debilitating that it was just impossible for that to continue for her own sanity and the safety of her children. She sought for that divorce again, like when I was really young. Um, But as I've come to know my biological father, I've come to know him with more compassion in my heart because his father was an alcoholic as well. And so at age 13, my uh, grandparents, his parents were separating. I, I suspect they were headed for divorce and, uh, it was just two days after Thanksgiving and uh, my grand- grandfather at the age of 43 was in such a dark place uh, because of addiction and other things, I suspect, that he decided to take his own life. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and you were 13 at this time?
1: This, my, my father was 13. Oh, I see. Time. Okay. So his father was 43 and he was 13 at the time that it happened. And so I just can't even fathom the uh, trauma that that caused yeah. him, you know. And whether he decided intentionally or unintentionally, he discovered that alcohol numbed his pain and he self medicated with that for, for decades. And so it's a pretty remarkable story of redemption, however, because in the fall of 1982, because of a series of events that occurred in his life, he moved from Utah back to Arkansas. And again, ironically, at Thanksgiving time on Thanksgiving Day, he was invited by his sister, my Aunt Trudy, and Uncle Rex. To Thanksgiving dinner, and he came, but he was drunk and obnoxious, and uh, my uncle Rex told me personally that he literally had to throw him out of his home and so my dad picked himself up and went to the car, and by default, he drove to the liquor store and, and bought some alcohol, and told me this personally. He, he went back to his house, and he took that bottle out of the bag, and I imagine uh, his mind thought something like this that you speak into the bottle. Have destroyed my life and everything of value you've taken from me, and he says I went to the kitchen, and I took the lid off and I poured it down the drain, and that's the last alcohol he ever drank. He uh-huh. he, just in the other room here, I have his sobriety coins framed, and he enjoyed 29 years of sobriety, and then actually went on to help people in addiction recovery, uh, as a certified counselor, helping people with AA as well as a beautiful community of recovering uh, men and women the harbor house in fort smith arkansas and at one point elder bednar was his stake president there in fort smith so yeah. it's pretty cool connection but then he came you know
0: became engaged in the church and whatnot yep. during, through all that
1: came right? back into the church about 14 or 12 years after his sobriety started he had a heart attack and the doctor told him you have to quit smoking because he was smoking at the time and so his friend said, well, because the doctor said you'll die of this heart and, you know, you won't survive the next one. And so his friend told him, well, if you're going to stop drink- smoking, you ought to stop drinking coffee too because they both are very connected. And so he said, I decided to stop both. Well, he was living the word of wisdom for the first time, maybe in his adult life for all I know. But anyway, he became active in the church and as part of the 12-step program, he came to all of us children to make amends. Hmm. and he asked me to forgive him. You know, and I told him, I said, Dad, I was so young that I don't remember. And how old were you when he asked for forgiveness? So I was in my 30s when that happened. And so he did that to all of our kids, and it was very touching It was very humbling to see him follow those steps so precisely. But he'd never made amends to my mother, who was probably the most important person. And the story's a little bit longer than this, but I'll give you the abbreviated version. But one year, he, he came to Utah in June of every year. He was at my brother's house, my oldest brother, who's his namesake. And he, my brother thought, I'm going to ask him about the temple. And he said, Dad, now that you're active in the church and going to church, have you ever thought about going back to the temple? And my dad did not respond to that at all. My brother thought, well, if he doesn't want to talk about it, then I'm not going to press the issue. Maybe it's too sensitive for him. And so he just dropped the subject. Well, a year later, fast forward, and he's in Utah again. He's with my oldest brother again. And this time he asks him, Father to son, will you take me to the temple? And my brother's first instinct was, Well, dad, it's not that easy. You have to get a recommend, you have to pay your tithe, and you have to see the bishop. And his uh, as my brother was explaining that all to him, my dad pulled out as well and showed him his recommend.
0: Hmm. He's ready to go?
1: He spent a whole year preparing to, uh, to go to the temple. So they went that night. It was a week night and It was such a wonderful experience. They decided, let's do this again on Saturday. And so I was living in Oregon at the time, so I wasn't part of this. But some of my siblings and nieces, nephews were able to do an endowment session at the Jordan River Temple that Saturday morning. And my sister was coming out of the session into the dressing room when she runs into my mother. And my mother, no one planned that, at least on earth they didn't plan it. And so my mother said, what are you doing here? And my sister said, what are you doing here? She said, well, we're doing initiatory. It's a high priest assignment. We're here in the temple doing that today. And then she said, what are you doing to my sister? And she said, well, brace yourself, mom, but your ex-husband, my father, is here in the temple. And I don't know. I can't even imagine what went through my mom's mind. But my sister said, well, come on out into the foyer and, and we'll just uh, say hello. And my mom called me that afternoon, I was reluctant to do that. but My sister was pretty persuasive and asked him to, um, her to come in the foyer. And My mom then picked up the story and she said, you know, I saw him in the foyer and I thought, I'll just go and shake his hand and be polite. And as uh, she reached for his hand, he grabbed hers and he pulled her close. And he made amends. He said, Barbara, I'm so sorry for the years of hell that I put you through. Will you please, please forgive me? And my mom, with a voice choked with emotion, she says it felt good to finally hear an apology. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I'm so proud of both my mother and father that they were able to come to terms with some severe trauma, difficulty and dysfunction that ran in our family for generations. but If we can improve one generation to the next, I think God is pleased. Yeah. And I certainly think our families evidence that.
0: Yeah. So with that backdrop, what's your earliest remembrance of maybe just that that struggle with your own personal addiction?
1: So here's here's the interesting thing about that is that I didn't know my family history. I didn't know about the genetics. And I think genetics play a role. Uh, In recovery, you learn that a lot of people struggle. And it's a family cycle, right? Just as it was in my family. And so, I didn't know there was a genetic component. I I really believe that some people are more inclined to be susceptible to addictive behaviors than others. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a a roll of the genetic dice with regard to what we get. But, you know, I I, I grew up, like I said, in a really wonderful home, a wonderful family. But it was pretty amazing when, I don't know, probably around 10, 11, and 12, my interest in GI Joes and Tonka trucks and Legos was replaced by girls. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, wow. (laughs) <laughs> All of a sudden these toys don't look as fun to me as as uh, you know, the the girls at school. And so, you know, I, I took an interest in that, didn't know anything. You know, as a culture we don't talk a lot about intimacy and, and sex, but uh especially that time, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I got one talk from my mother, it was about the birds and the bees, and she said, Are you okay? And I I just smiled and thought, I want to get out of here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if I say yes, can I go? Right. <laughs> That's right. So, I said, yes. Uh-huh. So, anyway, but between seventh and eighth grade, you know, I discovered that the body has a means to pleasure oneself. And so, and it wasn't, you know, I'd never seen it, never, no one ever told me about it. But, you know, I think it's pretty common for boys at that age to be drawn to, you know, the opposite sex and inappropriate materials and masturbation and so forth. hmm and so I wasn't really exposed to any pornography a little bit uh, as a teenager, but my imagination was sufficient. And so I struggled with that, talked to my bishop about it. And, you know, back then, really good, loving priesthood leaders gave counsel like, well, um, you know, take a cold shower, do push ups, run around the block, and,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and read the Book of Mormon. And I, and I believe all of that can be helpful. But I also believe that addiction. Is a brain ailment. I think it's. We don't have a problem calling alcoholism a disease, and I know that my father struggled with that real disease. But other addictions, opiates, alcohol, gambling—it all deals with the same pleasure centers of the brain, and and so that dopamine is very, very powerful drug. And so, anyway, you know, I just would check in with my bishop periodically before I mission. I met met with state presidency, and disclosed my challenges and and again it's very very common with missionaries as well i think i don't know if people would be surprised to know that but i've talked to other mission presidents and it's it's very common and they try to deal with it i think in a wonderful way that brother wilcox last october talked about with regard to worthiness versus flawlessness Hmm. so anyway went on my mission felt very worthy felt clean the MTC was amazing. At some point, my first area I don't remember exactly how many months in, but, you know, I saw something inappropriate and I was drawn to it and, you know, felt incredible shame and guilt because of that. So I visited with my, my uh, mission president. He was very understanding and loving and, again, offered counsel as to how to do that. And so I was trying to do all those things to prevent that, you know, reading the scriptures and doing all those things. And, and so... Um, but it would just, you know, pop up its ugly head time and time again.
0: And as a missionary, this, this was in the, like, it's not that you had access to pornography. Maybe you'd right. see some here and there, but this is mainly just struggles with masturbation. and Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, and, you know, in the world in which we live, uh, there's so much out there that offers the stimulant. So yeah. anyway, came home from my mission. Problem didn't go away. I thought getting married certainly would cure that. I think a lot of young men think yeah, that. You're not that's, the first to that's, that's, that's a fallacy. Assume that. Yep. It's a monster of its own vice. I mean, it is. Um, it requires you to feed it. It's just remarkable. It is an addiction. And for some, I want to be careful here because for some, it's not. I don't want to label everyone's yeah, This is just your story, but this is my yep. this yep. is my experience. In fact, I counseled with a man once who who said he grew up in the church. He did not grow up in the church, rather, and. Looked at pornography and didn't think it was a problem. People around him didn't think it was a problem. Then he joins the church and all of a sudden he starts being sensitive to this and maybe he shouldn't do it. And he said, I didn't think I was addicted until I s- tried to stop. Hmm. And then I couldn't stop. And I realized then that something more was in play. So marriage didn't solve it. It showed its head again. And in, in your
0: marriage, I mean, is this something that you talked to your wife about or you discussed or... Were you caught or I mean, any, how did it manifest itself in the context of your marriage?
1: Well, it's so I, I knew it was a problem. I talked to my bishop about it. Some people are the opinion, don't talk to your wife about it. I didn't think that was a good idea. I thought it was important to talk to her about it. And so the first year of our marriage, I disclosed that I challenged from time to time. And I could go weeks and even months without having any type of relapse or anything like that. But, and so you know, I wasn't, it wasn't really news that she wanted to hear and certainly not anything she deserved to hear. She's an amazing woman to this day. But so I lay that burden on her shoulders and, and I think she tried the best she could to deal with that.
0: Was it a, would you say like over that time of the marriage was a a strong, you know, sticking point, like it always came back to that, like there was, that was the center of the, of a lot of friction in, in your marriage? Or it would just come and go and sometimes it would flare flare up and other times not.
1: Well, her counsel to me, which I think is certainly responsible, is it's my problem. I got to fix it. So I tried Mm -hmm. desperately for years to do that. And then just, you know, prayed a thousand times to have this burden taken from me, but I just could not get rid of it. And so I think it may have been an underlying factor. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. But I mean, generally, would you say you had a good marriage during a lot of those years? I
1: I believe so. Yeah. Six children later. I mean, she's a good woman and we had fun together. We'd go out on dates on Friday nights and she was supportive in the church callings and she did all the things that she was asked to do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think overall it was very, very good. But of course, you know, there's this underlying thing that's happening that isn't talked about much or at all in some instances. And so...
0: Were you uh, getting... Uh, seeking help during these early years of your marriage as you were, you know, talking with your wife about it? What, did you seek professional help or was it more of just, you know, I just got to get this handled on
1: my own? Well, maybe professional help was available then, but I wasn't acquainted with it. You know, we're talking 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And um, I, I suspect that there could have been that avenue. But, you know, to me, I just thought it was a bad habit. Mm-hmm. You know, there was even. A pamphlet that came out when I was a teenager entitled To Young Men Only that talked about this issue. And uh, I just thought, well, you just stop the behavior. You don't have a problem, right? Yeah. I didn't know about the brain condition. I didn't know about the compulsion, the drugs involved in addictive behavior. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, tried to make the best of it. And I did talk to priesthood leaders countless times about uh, the challenge and and you know, the, the encouragement was always there, the love was always there, the support was there. And uh, I think another man understands the challenges, maybe harder for others to understand if they have not experienced that themselves. But yeah, again, there really wasn't a template that really had good success. Yeah. You know, as far as treatment and therapy that I've been involved in now, because that is essential. If if addiction is an illness. It requires medical attention and treatment. And I often say that an illness left untreated can become terminal. And I've known a few who that situation did become terminal for them. I mean, fortunately, you know, uh, I've done many things that I'm embarrassed about and ashamed of, certainly. But uh, I've never had an affair, you know, whether it was emotional or physical. You know, I I white-knuckled my way through that, but did certainly expose myself to inappropriate images.
0: So when it came time for you to, when you had interest in teaching, you know, going into church education and making that a a career, uh, where were you at that point? Did, Did that, was it that, did it come up in the discussions as being, you know, being hired or, you know, or in the interviews with your bishop to be considered there?
1: Well, it certainly is now from my understanding. And here, here along the way, this is, I'm really glad you asked this, Kurt, because at every point in these milestones, I thought, okay, this is the cure. Mm-hmm. I found it. Here we I go. Found it. Yeah. And I thought if I became a seminary teacher. Like, first it was get married. Oh, get married. That, that didn't work. Go on a mission. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Get married. Become a seminary teacher. I'll be studying the scriptures every day, the whole armor of God. I'll protect myself. This will certainly be the answer to my hmm. problems. And I had good sobriety at the time. It wasn't perfect, but I answered all the questions honestly and thought it was behind me. I really did. It wasn't as if I was trying to be deceitful. I really believed that finally the time had come and this was going to And you had
0: happen. some consistency with sobriety. Yeah.
1: Know, and you yeah, I could were go, encouraged by that. Could you go months, three, four months thinking, oh, finally, 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 it's behind me. And then all of a sudden, you know, a stressor would come. And a lot of times, whether it's pornography or food or alcohol, it's, it's a means to self medicate, right? Against those trying times. And Satan knows that, and that's the Achilles heel, is he knows that people are going to struggle with challenges. And so he throws that fiery dart at us in those times. And so I thought becoming a seminary teaching teacher would, would solve it.
2: Hmm.
1: It didn't. I, again, talked to bishops about it during that time. And that was a delicate issue because, you know, now my job is is on the line. Yeah, And so but they were supportive and...
0: And now we're getting into the late 90s where the internet is uh, getting old, right? And so is that part of it as well?
1: Well, yeah, certainly. That's when I think it exploded worldwide is when the the access to these materials are just one or two clicks away. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very devastating situation in which we live. But so, seminary teacher didn't cure it. Then, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I was called to be a bishop and thought, oh, this is it. This, yeah, this finally I got care. it. This, this is, is it. The, was the
0: calling I missed, right? If
1: God loves me sufficiently to call me to this, and I believe he did. I believe yeah. that every step of the way is leading up to this point with me sharing this story. Yeah. That God trusted me enough, but same thing. Being, being a bishop didn't cure
0: it. Was your stake president aware that you had some struggles in the past? I mean, were you open with him at that point? Or? I
1: talked to him about it, and at some point, and again, he was supportive. Indicated that it's maybe more frequent than we think, and so um, you know, again, study the Book of Mormon, read the scriptures, you know, go to the temple, do these things. And let me just say this too: I and I think Brother Wilcox touched on this, but um, sometimes. Individuals, well meaning, well intentioned, treat this punitively. And I understand there has to be some punitive response. But denying a young man to go to the temple, especially if he's living a life worthy, not flawless, but worthy because he's trying, deny him that opportunity to be endowed with that power that comes from the temple. I don't know if that is a good service. And I don't question a, a bishop or state presence uh, inspiration because that's certainly what they're entitled to, but mm-hmm. I think we're, we're coming of age where we're starting to understand this as an illness. And when that happens, I think people look at it with more compassion. Well, it's not maybe a moral failing. Mm-hmm. I
2: There's- saw
1: a billboard along the freeway that says opioid addiction is not a moral failing, and I applauded that. I thought, you know, finally, we're saying these things that are true, that uh, good, good, good people struggle with a whole host of things right this happens to be our families yeah addiction and you know even though i've been blessed to never taste alcohol and i i give god the credit there uh, there's other ways that addictive behaviors can be made manifest and so
0: yeah, i think it's just helpful to step back and realize that these are very complicated dynamics that are happening neurologically physically and you know with the and then the the context of the modern day technology and what's available, and you know how easy it is to trip over and whatnot. There's just a lot going on, and we can't boil it down to like there's just something wrong with this person because then it's a shame game, right? You're just buried in shame, and it's so hard to get out from under that shame.
1: Well, and I, I think it's mm-hmm. occupational hazard because the Puritan shame culture mm-hmm. that our ancestors grew out of in the church in the early days it was racked with shame, mm-hmm. and as a church. We dealt with shame, being kicked out of four or five states and uh, feeling you can't show your weakness. You know, you always have to be strong. And many of your listeners are probably familiar with Brene Brown. She's a wonderful author. and She talks about vulnerability. And and she talks about we look at vulnerability as a positive or a strength in others, but we think it's a weakness in ourselves. Mm. And she said we have to get past that. And then um, she then talks about what she called, which I kind of smile at this, the vulnerability hangover, where the next morning you wake up and go, what was I thinking? Yeah. And uh, maybe Nephi even went through that when he wrote, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, why do these sins so easily beset me?
0: Yeah, there's no easy eraser on those plates, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) Exactly. We're talking metal. So he woke up the next morning and goes, oh, my goodness. Yeah, what about? I, I guess it's there. Yeah, here we're we go. Gonna, On to chapter five, right? <laughs> I love that. So yeah,
0: so um, so going back to your, so you're you get called as a bishop, and that was you know you mentioned you know being in bishoprics and high council, and there's sort of be these leadership opportunities. But this is like now you're the father of the ward, right? That a uh, uh, judge in Israel. like it, it, there's something uh, heavy about this role to this feeling of like now I. You know, maybe I got it figured out. Like this will make me super good now, and I'll be able to resist more. I'll be, you know, blessed with strength and whatnot. Was there a moment when that that started to break down for you?
1: Well, that's what's so complicated about this because, I mean, some people would look at this and say, you know, how could God call an imperfect person like myself
0: or somebody that is maybe yeah, he's imperfect, but he's got some serious struggles here,
1: yeah. Right? But the Lord has no other option but work with broken vessels. I mean, we're all fall short of the glory of God. And so, and I know there needs to be a standard, and I've always tried to abide by that as best I could, and I can honestly say that. But yeah, there's this paradox. There's this horrible, you know, infighting with yourself, like, you know, how can I behave in such a manner? But, but you know what, Kurt? It's really remarkable to me that I felt God's love through this entire journey. I've never felt. I knew he wasn't pleased with some of my behaviors, but I never questioned his love for me. And um, and I'll tell you more in just a, a minute about what he told me back in 2013. But um, anyway, that love has always been felt. It's you know, get back up. You can do this. And I hope everyone who struggles with some form of addiction gets that feeling because I think there's an iron rod next to the path for which we all walk in part to pull ourselves back up when we fall. And the truth is we will fall. Uh, We all do. But he's there lovingly lifting us up and helping us back on that path to grab hold and to go a few more steps forward. Yeah.
0: So was there, you know, that that time serving as bishop, was there this uh, cadence of confession with you and the stake president. I mean, I remember a moment as as a bishop where I had a really hard day and I was struggling and I was at the bishop doing, you know, my Tuesday night interviews and I had just this all sorts of stuff happening at work. And and I remember shutting the door and just thinking, man, I wish I had a bishop to go to. (laughs) And the the spirit told me, well, yeah, you you can go down the street to the stake president and like, oh yeah. And so I drove down there. We had a great Conversation and gave me a blessing, and whatnot. But there's this feeling of like you know the loneliness of leadership, yeah, which I talk about. It a lot, is. You know, there of like, well, I don't want to diminish the trust that he has with right you and the stake presence. So, what was that cadence like, as far as like, well, here I am again. Well, what?
1: if I'm if I'm vulnerable and I show the weakness, then it's that whole thing about flawlessness versus unworthiness. Yeah, and you worry about that. You don't want to disappoint anyone. You don't want anyone to think less of you. And so, yeah, it was difficult, and I did talk to him about it on occasion, but it was, you know, like he'd just say, how you doing? And, of course, well, I'm doing fine, and, and uh, reading the Book of Mormon and doing all those things that I has to do. But even at that time, I knew nothing about the brain chemistry. I knew nothing about treatment. I knew nothing about addiction and so again it's just a bad habit you have yeah. to stop and so
0: and what how would you uh, articulate what that looked like was it like a, every few months you'd have a slip up was it like i'd go you go on a bender for three weeks and then come out of it or what did the, the addiction look like generally
1: well during that time it is it pretty addiction? common for a person to go weeks or even months and then to binge mm-hmm. you know and i don't know that i did that very often if at all but you know it would be sometimes weeks it would be sometimes months and i think even after i was called as a bishop there's about six months that went by that i didn't have any issues at all and felt very good about myself and again confident okay this is finally behind me this is finally behind me but again it just resurfaced and so yeah there's that feeling like going to you know over and over and over and over again and but there was a scripture in the book of mormon that suggests that as many times as people sought repentance, they were forgiven. Yeah. There's no quota. There's no, well, sorry, you reach your quota, your limit is, is mm-hmm. up. So, And during that whole time, I felt immense love from a patient, loving, understanding Heavenly Father that does understand the brain chemistry and does understand the genetic component. And so I remember even one time leaving the church and walking to my car with his last car in the parking lot. And I mean, the sky was beautiful. And I just felt this overwhelming feeling of love from Heavenly Father. And the words that came to my mind were, thank you for loving my children. Hmm. So yes, I'm sure that some of my choices, and I don't think anyone is immune from this, but some of my choices affect my abilities. But during the whole time, I I tried desperately to stay close to the Spirit. I tried desperately to white knuckle it and do what I could. But still, at that time, I didn't know anything about real recovery like I do now.
0: How long did you serve as bishop?
1: For five years
0: okay and would you say that throughout those five years this was just a constant struggle maybe there's moments of six months seven eight months that uh of sobriety but uh,
1: yeah it didn't go away yeah and that's what was so frustrating is i thought you know when's this ever gonna end
0: yeah maybe you're five right that'll i
1: (laughs) i thought maybe i would go to the grave with this but i found out that his grace is sufficient
0: was there ever a conversation between you and the state president of like oh, maybe we should release you from this calling and and really approach this? I mean, was he? Do you know if he was worried about it? Like as far as how much of a uh, often the relapses were and whatnot? Or
1: I suspect that is an issue that some. But bless his heart, he was very patient, compassionate, loving, and that was never brought up. Like you know, if you don't stop doing this, it's going to be. Yeah, and of course nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted. That to happen, but like uh, the release. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I didn't. I did never felt threatened from that yeah. perspective, because he's very loving and patient. And plus, he knew that you know I wasn't the only one struggling. This is a pretty common yeah issue with uh, men in the church. And so,
0: did it impact you? As far as I would imagine, you had several people come to you and confess uh, similar struggles. No. And so, did that change the dynamic, or what? What went through your mind? Is your trying to counsel somebody was this feeling of I'm just such a hypocrite or or, I don't know, like what, what feelings came to mind?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's no way you can deny that uh, because there's a certain level of hypocrisy in all of us, but that was Mm -hmm. glaring. But again, and I, I'm not saying this to justify it or feel like I'm fine at doing it, but I just felt never ending presence of a loving father who knew and understood. But I think it, you know, and I think, I think it's, Safe to say that we learn from our experiences, right? So yeah. I think I was much more understanding and passionate people who, who shared information about this. And I certainly understood what they were going through. Our family understood what they were going through. And so, but yeah, I tried to be very understanding, very helpful. And, and I tried to share with them the things that helped me mm-hmm. with regard. And there were certain things that I had identified that I tried to... Uh, utilizing my life as tools, but again, it wasn't real recovery.
0: Yeah. Anything else about those bishop years uh, related to this uh, this topic
1: that we needed? I, to I just I just loved serving with my counselors, one in particular. Uh, he was with me the entire five years and we're still close and still text each other from time to time. And uh, in fact, our youngest son is in part named after him because mm. he's such an influence in my life. But we love serving. We loved meeting with the saints. We had fun doing it. We really enjoyed ourselves. So it was beautiful.
0: And uh, you get released and come to Utah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In 2005, we moved to Utah and um, you know, it was only a year after uh, I was released. And so we moved to Utah. And uh, again, like I indicated, I served in a couple of different bishoprics with wonderful men who were bishops and tried to be the kind of counselor that I wanted to have. And yeah, and I think uh, that was wonderful. And then in 2010, our high counselor came into our bishopric meeting just as it ended and said, oh, by the way, in two weeks, our stake's going to be reorganized. There's going to split the stake and we'll make two stakes out of one. And I just had this overwhelming sensation that somehow I might play a role in those events happening. And so mm-hmm. they- You were uh, a counselor in a bishopric. Counselor week, in bishop, huh? okay. at the time. And you know, By custom, they interview certain individuals, bishops, high counselors, stake presidency members, and so forth. And there's a couple individuals in addition that the stake president can choose to put on the list. And somehow I made the list. And so a couple weeks later to uh, an Area 70 and another member of the 70, the Area 70 is now an apostle. Uh, They came to our stake and I had my interview scheduled in the morning. And so I went to that interview and I thought it went well short like mine was uh, five minutes or so (laughs) yeah yeah very 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 brief Uh next yeah and so um they said just stay close to your phone and so i did and i think by about one o'clock that afternoon my phone rang and said can you and your wife come up to the state president's office and so that's a little nerve-wracking to have that happen to you and so i went up there and they called me into the office just three of us and They extended the call, and I told them that I'd struggle with this. And I have to be careful here, because I think I minimized it, but it wasn't intentional. I thought, again, this is my cure. I thought this is finally going to be it. I thought with God's help and the prayer of the saints, I would be able to survive this, and it will finally be behind me.
0: So, did you feel like you articulated in a way that this is an issue, but I have a reasonable – I pretty good control over – over these compulsions. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And, and, and I was confident in saying that. I really believe that. Yeah. I was wrong, but I really believe that. And so they look at each other, and, and the one senior representative there said, Brother Raleigh said, we've had multiple assurances that you're supposed to be the state president. So they extended the call, and I'm sure they asked me, I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure they asked me whether I talked to my wife about it, and I had talked to her a few times. And so I, I told them that, And so then they called her in and asked some questions of her, and they seemed to be satisfied with those answers. And so anyway, I went home that night. I was very sleepless, and I thought, they've made a mistake. I'm not worthy. I need to tell them that they've made a mistake. So the next morning I intended to go in there, but as I entered into that building, the Spirit said, I'll cover you. You, just, you sit down and listen. And so I did. And we called counselors and the first seven months of that was just amazing, wonderful. And then this uh, demon of demons raised its ugly head again and I was just so devastated. But like you said, the loneliness of leadership, right? Who do, who do you talk to about that?
0: Especially a stake president because yeah. as a bishop, you have a stake yeah. president, but it, right. I mean, you have a maybe a assigned area authority, but it's more like an administrative thing, but who do you reach out to? I
1: mean, yeah. Well, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, on occasion, uh, once or twice a year, uh, general authority will come to your state conference Yeah. if you're lucky and there's opportunities there, which I'll tell more about in a second. But anyway, so I just, you know, white knuckled it and fought it and prayed about it. And again, I felt the Lord was understanding, but there certainly was that feeling of hypocrisy and But I feel like it was effective both as a bishop and as a state president. I feel like we got a lot of things done. Counselors were tremendous. You were were probably
0: connecting with people, feeling the spirit. I mean, you were, yeah, yeah. it's not like you were this empty hollow vessel walking around as a zombie, Right. right? Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was all very, very good. And even after a relapse here and there, you know, I would, and it's very common, you know, that you repent sincerely and heartily and read the scriptures more and you're more dutiful. and so, it's kind of a roller coaster ride in that regard. Let me
0: ask you about just obviously a lot of these relapses can be connected to extra stress and just those moments, those tough weeks right, or tough months or whatever it is. And I remember as a bishop, you know, there's, we sort of paint this uh, picture that, you know, if, if you serve in these roles, you get extra blessings, which yeah, I, I could probably write a long list of what those blessings are. And then we sort of default to, and your family's so blessed, but I remember a lot of the times arguments that my wife and I would have while I was Bishop wasn't just tangentially related to me being Bishop. It was because I was Bishop, like the stress that that would put on the family some weeks was a lot and it would be, you know, emotions would boil over. So going back to this experience, like, do you feel like just the stress of being a leader in these roles often maybe led to a relapse?
1: I think that's absolutely true. I think that, um, I mean, how do you deal with those stresses? Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't drink alcohol. We don't use prescription drugs, hopefully, inappropriately. But uh, Satan knows that there's this inborn compulsion to procreate that's already there. And, and, and so, in your
0: situation, he'd already leveraged that and abused it time
1: before. So, Yeah. yeah, And then, you know, knew the, the genetic component of all that. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it was difficult. That went on for about... Three years of me just white knuckling and doing the best that I could, and then we had a general authority come, and it was really interesting because he was not originally assigned.
0: And what? How how long were had you been stake president at this point? So for
1: three years. Okay. For three and a half years at the time, and within a week or so, we got notification that he was going to be um, coming instead of the other one, and uh, so we you know got all our. Ducks and row and made the changes to whatever we needed to change and and so he came and on that Saturday he talked a lot about addiction, talked a lot about pornography to the priesthood leaders and priesthood leadership and then talked to us about it in the office just for the state presidency and then Sunday morning he had a priesthood leadership where he talked more about it and um, I'm just like oh my goodness you know he's he's preaching to the choir and so again. Talk about restless night. And I was pacing the floor, couldn't sleep, and the spirit said you need to talk to him. And I thought, you know, my job's at stake.
0: Because you're a, like, a seminary teacher at this yeah, point, right? Yeah. So there's lots of dynamics right. in the works here. Yeah. Job
1: at stake, calling at stake, maybe even a marriage at stake. So his eyes vacillating on whether or not I was going to have that conversation with him because we had a 30-minute PPI scheduled in the overall weekly weekend schedule. So, I remember exactly where I was standing in my house, and like Enos, the Lord spoke to my mind, and he said, tell your story. If you tell your story, I'll cover you. Just tell your story. And I've been doing that ever since. So, the next morning, we meet, we sit down in my office, and he says, President Raleigh, will you say a prayer? And so, I did, and 10 seconds into the prayer, I'm just sobbing. And I close the prayer, and he says, what's wrong? And, you know, I told him that the struggle just never went away, and I've tried my whole life, and I think I need help. I don't think I can do this on my own anymore. And so he was loving and understanding, but concerned, as he should be. And so we met at the close of the state conference for a few minutes, and then he asked me to come a month later to his office in Salt Lake so on January 31st of 2013, I went to his office and, and he conducted a thorough interview to you know, try to discover whether or not there are other things undisclosed. And and so I shared with him my struggles and my challenges, and he gave me a beautiful blessing. And, and in that blessing, he promised that this would be removed. And it took years, but his blessing has come to fruition. And... I have years of sobriety now, and, and in the healthiest place I've ever been with regard mm-hmm. to to this addiction. So,
0: yeah. So, meeting in that uh, office, what did you? I mean, as you're you've opened up, you've talked to that uh, you know that general authority about your struggles. Were you then worried that this may come to an end of my calling? Like, at what point did that feel not just a worry, but more of a
1: a reality? Yeah, certainly. I was worried about all those things, but I trusted. My father, and when he said, You tell your story. So, you know, I just threw caution to the wind and did what I was instructed to do. And, but yeah, I thought it could cause me to be released. And in the end, it did. And the, the final thing he said on that fateful day was, Have you talked to your wife about this? And again, I said, I've tried on occasion to do that. He said, well, Why don't you, you need to do it again today? I said, Go home and talk to her about it. And so I did. And she was understanding and she was uh, patient. But uh, there's something that she started to experience that I didn't even know what it was at the time. But I've come to be well acquainted with betrayal trauma and what women might go through when disclosure like this is made. And so she was spiraling down. For me, on the other hand, you know, I had sobriety and, and I felt worthy and I felt like, you know, things were going well. And so I was on an upward trajectory, you know, going one way, but she's going in the opposite direction, which is very difficult. And uh, I hope and pray going forward that there's more of a template for leaders when they come forward with information like this, because I was instructed to email once a week for accountability and to read a couple books about addiction and pornography. And so I did that and thought, well, I'm in recovery, right? This is what I've been asked to do. I even inquired at that meeting in July with about 12-step because I have a brother who has gone through similar situations and was well ahead of me on the recovery game, and I'm so proud of him for his example to me. And so I asked the general authority about that, and he was reluctant for very good reasons for me to go to those meetings because if I was seen by someone, you know, as a seminary teacher, stake president, that would be A challenge, and so Hmm. when he said that, I was almost relieved. Like, oh, I didn't want to go to that meeting anyway, right? So,
0: I think nobody really wants to go to the first meeting. You know, they look forward to maybe others, but that first one's a tough one, right?
1: Yeah. So, anyway, but it was just—I called it a perfect storm for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, Talk about the loneliness. It was especially true for my wife. She didn't have really any. You know, did she go to our bishop and tell? the bishop, the stake president struggling with this, Yeah, it was just very, very difficult.
0: Like you said, there's no template, right? And who knows if there is now, but just uh it's be worth like thinking through, like, you know, even a, a stake president thinking through what if a bishop is struggling, you know, what, how do I get those resources and yeah. help? And I mean, the, it's just, and that's why everybody involved had the best intentions, probably didn't handle everything perfectly, you know, in, in hindsight, but here we are.
1: Everyone tried. Yeah. Everyone tried their best at every level. But we've learned more in the last seven or eight years than we knew then as well. Yeah. And so after about a year, I still felt like I was doing well, but my wife was not in a good place. And it felt like we were just treading water, you know, just for so long, it felt like we were going to drown. And so I reached out to the general authority and asked him if I could visit with the Area 70 who would come in occasionally. And he consented for me to do that. And so, I disclosed that to the Area 70, and uh, he immediately tried to come in and help us out, but it was difficult for him to, you know. And when you say
0: help us out, like as far as give counsel and encouragement? Give, give counsel between and you encouragement,
1: and your wife. yeah, okay. and maybe even some marriage counseling efforts there. But, you know, he wasn't a professional at that, but again, he did the very best that he could.
0: Yeah. Did you seek professional counseling or?
1: Not initially, but eventually we did my wife and i started going to uh, a marriage therapist addiction recovery therapist we went to multiple and some had really good experiences and some so not and, and i just realized that the landscape is kind of all over the map with regard to how people view this and with the counsel they give mm-hmm. and the direction and suggestions they offer but um anyway it was somewhat helpful but um you know with uh, my wife's challenge of this and betrayal trauma, and how difficult that was for her. I mean, ultimately, she decided that uh, divorce was the best option, and you know, I support her and and uh, appreciate that that was the decision she had to make. Mm-hmm. And, and this I, is
0: you're still the state president when she's made this decision,
1: st- right? Still <laughs> the state president, but okay. that was kind of the the nail in the coffin there too. And so it was determined that we weren't going to immediately improve. And so it was determined to release me after five years, and so the whole stake presidency released, and, and a new one was called. And I love those men dearly, and work with them all closely. Yeah. Was it years.
0: difficult to articulate that to the stake? I mean, these are such personal issues, but they you know affect things that are more public, positions that are public. Was it hard to to do that?
1: Well, yeah, I think it, I heard that there were rumors going around is why we're being released after five years instead of nine years, which is typical. And so, you know, we, we just had to put on a smiling face and go forward and, and then, but the area 70 felt that I still had that maybe we had my wife and I both, uh, the ability to contribute to the kingdom. And so he talked to the powers that be and, and shortly thereafter, I was called to the church's corrections committee, working with jails and prisons in central Utah and, um, it was a husband and wife calling, and my wife and I tried to do that for about a year, but it didn't work so well for her. And so uh, she has to be released from that calling, which I totally understand. And um, So the,
0: the, the divorce didn't come immediately
1: after uh, your release. So you, no. maybe you gave a few additional tries. Well, and once the divorce was determined, it was a policy of seminaries and institutes. And I don't think this happens all the time now, which I'm grateful for. But, you know, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin, mm. you know, that uh, – I received a termination date, and they were very, very good with me, helping me transition out of that. I just owe a debt of gratitude to the, to the church and seminaries and institutes and all those who lead them, because they've been very supportive during this whole process. But the blessing of that, and while I'm on that topic, is that I've been able to have conversations with them for the last six or seven years about addiction and about challenges that other seminary and institute teachers face and it's been very very helpful for me to be able to share that information and uh, my hope and prayer is and i've been assured that it's blessed many lives because of those frank open conversations about how we can respond to this maybe differently than we responded in the past so that was a real blessing but um i continued to get help uh was referred to by a mentor and one of our directors on the corrections committee I wouldn't have been able to get in to see this man without his endorsement or, or referral, but he was my therapist, and I just love him dearly. And he was the greatest champion for me, and cheerleader, and encourager. Because as I as I visited with him, I I started to realize that maybe I was more normal than I thought. That I wasn't this by nature a wicked individual, and so he was really a tremendous blessing to me. But He met with my wife a few times, but she was to the point where, and again, for her own sanity and for her own safety, she had to make those decisions and I honor that agency. And so the divorce, we started the paperwork, but I didn't have a job at the time. So it was a little bit delayed until I was able to be reemployed so that we could base the calculations for financial assistance on that. And so uh, divorce was final just a little over three years ago. And we've tried to move forward in our lives, working jointly with the kids the best we could. Most of the children, five of the six, were adults at the time, and so they were a little bit more removed. But we do have currently a sixteen-year-old son that we work quite a bit closely together to help him out. And I try to make it down there to Utah County as many times as I can to visit and support and do what I can to bless him. And yeah, so but by God's grace. When he said, "If you tell your story, I'll cover you," he has countless times, you know, financially. Uh, my wife and I now, and I was remarried to Peggy in July of 2020.
0: COVID wedding, a, huh?
1: a COVID romance. <laughs> that's right. We did not wear masks. I will, I will tell you that. Um, <laughs>
0: At your wedding, is that okay?
1: <laughs> well, we had masks for everyone. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and gloves, so and yeah. sanitizer. So we were trying to do our best and then uh, we picked a really special day so we were married civilly in ogden botanical gardens beautiful location so because of limitations and gatherings back then it was only immediate families it was pretty small gathering but uh, we were able to uh, be sealed in the ogden temple on 10 10 2020 which is a really cool date 10 10 2020 and so we live here in roy in this beautiful home and And Peggy is the love of my life now. It it just indicates that God is able to find a silver lining in the darkest of clouds. Mm. And uh, the first time I ever spoke to her on the phone, she told me about her past a little bit with her ex husband. And some of the challenges were aligned a little bit, not all that much, thankfully. But uh, I knew she had to know because this could be a deal breaker for her. And I did that with all the women I dated, I told them. If I felt there was going to be a second or third date, I was very honest about why. Because they would say, you know, Chris, you seem like such a nice guy. Why would your wife divorce you? And I could give one answer, but they want to know her answer. And, and, mm-hmm. that, and that was her answer. And I, I completely understand that. So I told Peggy. Thankfully, it didn't scare away. But by then, I'd had at least a year of sobriety. And so it was really encouraging to her. She told me if I didn't have that, that it may have been a deal breaker for her. But um, just last night on the couch in the other room here, she just looked at me and just was so sweet and so tender and so loving and so supportive. And so we are tremendously blessed. And it really does indicate that God fulfills his promises. when he said, if you tell your story, I'll cover you. And he has so many times. In fact, I even think this opportunity to share this is part of that, yeah. That my hope is, is that people come to understand that it isn't hopeless and that people can get to that place where it's now in the rearview mirror. And the prayer is, you know, that you're you take it one day at a time, as we say in recovery. You know, I take it. Give me another twenty-four every Friday morning. Tomorrow morning, I'll be on a Zoom addiction recovery meeting, and uh, I've been able to. Now, assist other men as sponsors to multiple men, helping them in their recovery. And my story offers hope to others like, because many people, I will, many in this audience were like me thinking, I don't think I can ever beat this. I don't think it'll ever be possible. And I promise you, as I speak to you individually and collectively, you can't. And um, in Brother Wilcox's talk last October, we talked about, I've already alluded to that, you know, worthiness versus flawlessness. But he talks about an endowment of strength he equates that equates that with grace this endowment of strength and it's made me think about the passage in the book of mormon where it says we're saved by grace after all we can do and i've heard people offer explanations as to what that means but i'll just tell you what it means for me kurt is that god is a very student-centered teacher and because i prayed a thousand times and i didn't feel like those prayers were answered he was there saying, there's things you have to learn first. So when it says, after all you can do, I had to do some things. And it's called recovery. And it's called treatment. And it's called therapy if, if need be. And uh, once I had accomplished all those things, I was talking to a friend once who told me, because I was telling them about sobriety that others had had that I knew and was acquainted with. And they said to me, why not you? And I thought, Yeah. Why not me? You know, when's it my turn? And so a few months after that conversation, my wife calls it her come to Jesus meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Where I just talked to him very frankly and pled with him. And the answer was, it's time. But you had to do certain things to get to this place. And if I denied you that, if I waved a magic wand, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have learned the lessons. You wouldn't have learned the process. You wouldn't have learned recovery. The beautiful thing about this, I think, I was talking to a mentor of mine once who I said to him, I said, uh, Do you think the spirit of Elijah has the opportunity to do or help ancestors in ways outside of the temple? And he said, Yes, Chris, I believe that's true. Because I believe my grandfather took his own life at age 43 have so many unresolved issues on the table. Kurt, who fixes that? You know, who, who is their magic wand where we just wave it and all those things get fixed? And my feeling is, and I've had a personal, personal experience with my grandfather, even though I've never met him. He died 17 years before I was even born. But he asked me for help very clearly. And with tears streaming down my face, I said, I will help you. I don't know what that help looks like. But I will help you. And just last Sunday morning when I spoke to those men in the Gunnison prison, I told them about my family story. And I told them, I said, every time I tell this story, because in many ways, because of my father's twenty-nine years of sobriety, the generationally we're improving from generation to generation, I offer redemption to both of them. Because Jesus has the power to save. And maybe their story. Isn't hopeless. That if I offer hope hope to others, thinking, if my family can do that, and I tell the men and women in prison when I tell this story, I say, listen, if we can do it, you can do it. If you don't believe that you can turn the tide on your family and change its trajectory in a single generation through the help of Jesus Christ, you look at me. I'm living proof. I was able to speak at my father's funeral. And the three speakers before him were friends of his from AA, and they all stood up and started their talk the same way. They said, hello, my name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic. And everyone in unison in the audience, all of his AA friends, said, hello, Jason. I thought, wow, well, we're in AA meeting. <laughs> the next speaker, Mark, friend from AA, stood up started the same way. The next guy, same way. And I thought, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> and these words came to my mind as I stood at that pulpit in a small mortuary chapel. Chapel in Fort Smith, Arkansas said, Hello, my name is Christian. I am my father's son. By the grace of Jesus Christ, I'm not an alcoholic. And I wept. People in the audience wept, It is by the grace of Jesus Christ that we can find healing from an illness that is real, but it doesn't happen without treatment. We can't expect to be cured of any illness without getting professional help. And to anyone who struggles, you're not alone. I often say in our recovery meetings, I say, guys, for every one of us, there's a thousand who suffers in silence because they don't know where to turn. They don't know help is available, but more and more help is available. And your bishops should know and understand treatment programs. The church has a wonderful ARP meeting that um, I first started attending. I just drove to another county uh, 45 minutes away to attend that meeting because I knew I needed that help and so the meeting I go to now is LDS based and it's wonderful but it's uh, you know based solely not solely but mainly on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous which to me and my family is pretty tender because that was so important to my yeah. father and his yeah. recovery but uh, I feel like almost that uh, my dad my biological father who struggled with addiction himself has handed a baton to us, the next generation, and said, please carry this. Because he was passionate, passionate about recovery. At the viewing before his funeral, I stood at the the casket, and men and women, I'll never meet again. Immortality came up to me and said, I'm sober six months because you're dead. Wow. And that was powerful to hear that witness and the difference he tried to make. In fact, after we settled his estate, I felt impressed. I, I had an experience in his home. I slept in his bedroom uh, back there in arkansas and i just felt that he wanted to give he wanted to give more and so i told my brothers the next morning i said after we settle the estate here and get some money I, I i'm gonna do it i'd encourage you to do it if you wanted to and uh so we got a thousand dollars and i called back there and talked to his close friends and She said, Well, let me get back to you. We'll decide what we want. And I thought, you know, if you need a new water heater for the facility, if you need a TV for videos or whatever, you know, we're here to help you out. And she said, I'll get back to you. So she got back to me, and I should have known this, but I didn't. But it was all about recovery. And so we were able to buy 150 big books from AA. Mm -hmm. And in the front is stamped my father's name in memory of Kenneth James Raleigh for all those who could not afford the book. It was given to them by his generosity. So even after death, he continued yeah. to help people in recovery. And he's still very passionate. And I think I've adopted that passion.
0: Well, I appreciate you honoring his name and, and uh, these are important stories to tell. You know, it's easy as as mortals, we want, we want Chris's five-step uh, points of, of recovery, right? But as I reflect on your story you've just told, Starting with maybe I just need to serve that mission. Maybe I just need to get married. Maybe I, maybe I need to be a seminary teacher, a bishop, stake president. And then, then it will come. But what I'm learning from the story and is that it was not until you were willing to tell your story that that spark of of redemption began to grow in, inside your heart. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, it seems almost counterintuitive, right? Right. It's the one of the many paradoxes that yeah. of the God we worship.
1: Yeah. Right. And that's exactly true. If you tell your story, I'll cover you. And I thought, if I tell my story, in fact, I've said this many times, if I would have known the consequences of telling that story, Kurt, I don't know that I've been brave enough to, yeah. to share it. Yeah, Because uh, all the things I feared occurred, but he has like Job, he has replaced and more those many, many blessings. And so, yeah, but Brene Brown is right. You know, transparency is the key yeah. in being vulnerable and I think most people will appreciate that because we're all human, right? Yeah. We all make mistakes and fail from time to time. And,
0: and as we wrap up here, I want to focus on the, that topic of, of bravery because um, I know that there are probably leaders listening, bishops who from the perspective of their reward, this bishop has it all together. That stake president, he probably doesn't even worry about sin in those quiet moments in his home when he's alone. He suffers in silence because he thinks I can, there's no way I can speak up. And so, if we were talking to that leader, maybe that's where they could start is find somebody to tell your story, even if it's the homeless man on the corner, right? Like start there. I want to put out the invitation to everybody listening that, you know, I'm one email away. Maybe it's hard to tell your bishop, your stake president, your whatever, but I'll take your email and I won't run to your bishop and tell him, but well, I'll just sit with you in that. And I want to just hear your story, right? Anything else you'd message that you'd give to that one leader out there who's maybe suffering
1: in silence? Well, and I'm open to that too. If, if individuals yeah. want to contact me, I'm more than happy to help in any way that I can. But I mean, it's very, very difficult. But if we live in a culture that encourages some levels of dishonesty because of shame, then maybe we can change that culture. I remember going through this, that perfect storm and all these horrific things are happening to us. And my wife suffered as much or more than I did through all of it. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, if we have to take a bullet, if we have to take one for the team, I'm happy to do that. But I don't want any other seminar institute teacher and their spouse or priest, the leader, and their spouse to go through what we went through.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the encouragement and hope is, is there is more understanding now than there was seven or eight years ago, much more. And the understanding of the illness related to it and more compassion enters into the equation. And because of that, I believe many marriages can be saved. In fact, the men that I work with, their marriages uh, by and large are of staying intact. And so that's very encouraging, but also it may not and you have to be willing to, to consider that as well as it was in my case. But yeah, just, I guess in some respects, it's a compliment that God trusted me enough that he knew that I would open my mouth, that I would tell my story. It's not just my story. It's my family's story. I mean, my children have gone through so much because of this. But they understand that we're trying to course correct generations and generations of dysfunction and addiction. That's not easy. That weight is very, very heavy. But the hope and prayer is that we'll change that trajectory for our children and grandchildren, that they'll be able to walk a better path, not without challenges, because that's part of the mortal experience, but with more understanding and more compassion and more openness and more transparency. We talk about these things with our children instead of just, you know, not talking, which is mostly what we've done and so it's probably the most complex thing that god's given man and woman this concept of sex and intimacy and procreation and yet we just don't talk about it very much yeah and so my hope and prayers of this opens the door to a conversation that is healthy and encouraging and realize there is life going forward without this again i'm living proof
0: you know i think many people maybe started this podcast episode you know obviously a podcast about leadership thinking they're going to hear about a story about leadership gone wrong, but I think what they've heard is a story of leadership gone right. And it's easy to, you know, classify you as a leader who's served in some of these callings. As we we talked to many individuals with that experience, but you obviously became a leader that was asked to tell your story, and and you've done it again and again and again. And that's that's like that's like the purest of leadership there. That I, I just love hearing those inspiring stories. So. As we wrap up, last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time as a leader, how has that helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ?
1: Well, I've come to know Jesus in ways I never knew I could. I personally felt his redeeming love and the consequence of him shedding blood on my behalf. So I never knew, you know, you think I would because I taught seminary, right? I never knew the depths and the breadth of his undying love for us, his children. And my wife and I often offer this prayer that all we want to do, and I offered this prayer before you arrived today, all I want to do is serve you all the days of my life. And the older I get, the more and more I appreciate why I will praise his name forever. He doesn't need it, and I don't think he even wants it. I think there was an Elder Holland quote, and I hope I get this close, but he says that we should understand that we're to love God with all of our heart, might, might, and strength, but first know that he loves us with all of his heart, might, might, and strength. And I found that to be true, and I'm a willing follower.
0: And now that you've listened to this episode, go check out our top 10 most popular episodes by searching T10 in the search bar. And be sure to subscribe to our weekly email leadership message by going to leading slash subscribe or text the word lead to 474747.
1: It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought Forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership, from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage
2: and ability.